Alabama, Michael and Elizabeth Stewart. Welcome. As you approach one year of marriage, how about that? That's great. It's good to see you guys. Yeah. Can you put up that last slide one more time from the song, Aaron? Let's go to the throne of grace one more time. I just, I needed to remember that. If you'll keep it as part of our prayer, you'll keep it up there for us if you can. Thank you. Lord, for us who are safely in the ark that is in Christ, founded upon the one who is the rock from whom living water has flowed, we say you have washed us with your blood, and you are worthy, Lamb of God. We pray now in our time as we hear the word and we ask this question, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? Lord, we pray that you would remove distractions. We beg you for your Spirit's work in us. We pray that what's transpired this past week, what's on our phones right now, who's in front of us, the what's what we've got to do next week, we pray that you would help us set that aside and that we would focus on you and on your word and that we would be humble and contrite of heart before it because we know it's to those that you look. We need your help. Have you not said that you are our helper? And because of that, what shall man do to us? So we look to you. We ask this for the sake of our Lord Jesus and the great glory of his name. Amen. Amen. You look up. Just imagine you're looking up. Your neck is craned kind of skyward. Maybe it's a cell tower or a giant windmill. Or maybe it's the tallest peak in South America on the Andes, Mount Aconcagua, or even Everest in the Himalayas, or maybe like one of those vertical cliffs, 3,000 feet, almost a whole kilometer from the base, rising as sheer cliff there in Zion National Park in Utah. Maybe one of those skyscrapers in Abu Dhabi or another first world city like Shanghai, and you ask, how in the world do we get up there? It just seems impossible. And the psalmist asks a related question in Psalm 24 and verse 2, as I read earlier in our call to worship, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? You might notice I borrowed that for our title this morning. And David goes on to say, who shall stand in his holy place? Real questions. And of course, in both Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, David provides real answers to this very probing question, which when you boil down the whole subject of the Bible, is really the answer 
to that question. That is, how may we be right with God? Or let me make it personal. How will God accept you? And if David may ask and answer this question for us, he rightly takes a role really as our inspired tour guide to help us think about this book, Leviticus. And it's fair, as you think of Leviticus, if you think one word association for the book, holiness. It's okay. That's good. It's good. And so this morning, I want to introduce you to the book of Leviticus as we'll plan to take somewhere between a 12 and 15 week sermon series journey through it. What is really the central book in the Pentateuch, I think, in the law of Moses of those first five books of the Bible. And our goal will not be, and some of you will be grateful for this, no verse-by-verse exposition of every single verse detailing it as though it were a running commentary through all 27 chapters of the book. It'll be what you call a biblical theology approach to these 27 chapters. So what is in view? What do we have in view as we're trying, in effect, to look up? We're asking, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And the clear answer from Psalm 15, Psalm 24, is in this zip code of holiness. But what's in view, or who is in view, is Christ. The one to whom all of Scripture is preparing us, pointing us to, and in whom all the redemption purposes and plan of God find their fulfillment. It's why Paul naturally says in 1 Corinthians, maybe 2 Corinthians, that the promises of God have their what? Their yea and their amen in Christ Jesus. All right? And we need to take a cue from those disciples in Luke 24 who were talking on the road to Emmaus. They were kind of reviewing the week. We can review. And Jesus spoke to them as he appeared to them. And Luke says this about that moment in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And you might know just a few verses later, they haven't recognized him, but he breaks bread with them. He opens their eyes so that they recognize him. And this is what they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So now, Leviticus. Let's get started. We're literally going to take the first step on this journey over a 12 or 15 week series. First, I want to caution us to beware of these particular temptations to look down upon this book. And I understand, if you have John's gospel and you have Romans and maybe Ephesians in this super category of books that are your kind of default that you turn to, I understand that, right? I understand that. But we must be aware or beware of this temptation to dichotomize God or the scriptures or to speak dismissively and think it's the Old Testament. Recently, a local college football coach who I will not name, he defended his actions for criticizing a critic on his call-in show by saying, justifying his response by saying this, I went all Old Testament on him. I went Old Testament on him. 
Hmm. Wrong. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of God, or of Jacob, are not consumed. Brothers and sisters, we find then in history and in the Bible the unfolding redemptive plan of God, but that plan, though it is unfolding, is the plan of an unchanging God. He never changes. And that allows us then to resist this temptation to dichotomize God and think, like, there's more than one God. No, he's not changed. And therefore, the whole of Scripture, all 66 books bound together in two testaments, speak of him. And they point to Jesus. Secondly, you might be tempted to say, it's full of law. I'll grant that to you. It's true. And maybe you can, if you want to turn there for a moment, you'll notice. I'll point this out. Chapter 10, the death of Nadab and Abihu. For the most part, with very little exception, that's the narrative portion of the book of, Levit- of Leviticus. The rest is law. Hmm? It is full of law. And we must use wisdom, interpretive wisdom, in how to take a book that's 95% law and discern its use for the, its, for the original hearers, but also its application to the church today. Every portion of Scripture, including those portions that are law, are equally inspired, equally take their place in Scripture, even if they don't have everyday equal value in the way, for example, you may take John 3.16 or Romans 8.28 or 2 Corinthians 5.21, whether you're talking about God so loved the world or God works all things together for good or God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. But it's all Scripture. And it's it's all taken together, designed by God in his wisdom to reveal Christ to us and to prepare our hearts to receive him by faith. And so as a practical application, moms and dads, in your families and in worship, do not relegate the Pentateuch or Leviticus to the pile of unreadable books in the Bible, all right? Paul even acknowledges this in Galatians simply by stating the relationship between law and faith. In Galatians 3, 23 and 24, listen to this. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. First temptation, it's the Old Testament. Second temptation, it's full of law. Third, it is too hard to understand. Because something is hard to understand does not mean that we're exempt from exerting ourselves to seeking to understand it. The same thing might be said of some other books. Maybe you could name books that you find hard to understand. How about Ezekiel? How about Daniel? How about Revelation, okay? For in these we find metaphors and prophecy in what we call apocalyptic language. Not all of Scripture is equally on the surface as easy to understand as other passages. Some are more clear than others, right? There's a second thing, and that is as we've 
consider the temptations we might face with his studies. I want us to see the structure of, of the Pentateuch. In, in, in next Sunday night, I'll have this in the form of a PowerPoint. I think it will help us as we think of these first five books of the Bible. And I want to credit a couple of other guys, Gordon Winham, Moshe Klein, and then even our Greenville's own Dr. Michael Morales for their help in, in seeing the clear literary structure of these books. And so I want you for the moment to think of Genesis as A, Exodus as B, Leviticus as C, Numbers as B prime, because it's paired with Exodus, and then finally, paired with Genesis A, will be Deuteronomy as A prime. We're not going to review that over and over, but for the moment, here's how I want you to think of the Pentateuch. And I think it will help you then in not simply dismissing this book that's hard to read, full of law, and quite at points uh, difficult to understand. So first, indulge me just for a moment as we think of the structure of the book of Leviticus uh, within the the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, right? Penta for five. First, you have Genesis, which is the introductory prologue. If you want to call it the introduction, great, okay? Deuteronomy, the final book, is the reflective epilogue. It's like sometimes when you give a, you're telling a story, or you tell someone I'm going to present something, you present it, and at the end of presenting it, you tell them what you presented, all right? So Deuteronomy has that function with Genesis. But in the middle are these three books, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, between the prologue and the epilogue. And Gordon Wyndham calls these three extended journey stop cycles. It's kind of like some of you said, hey, how was your time in Europe? It's great. And we give the whole trip, 16 days, pretty well like this. One continent, four countries, six days in western Spain, one night in Madrid, three days in Prague, and four in a village one hour east of Hanover. I just gave you a summary of 16 days in 15 seconds. And what, what the writer here, we say Moses, all right, in, in these books is doing with Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is chronicling the journey, but also when the journey seems to stop and settle in one sp- spot from dynamic to static in these three books, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So Genesis, the prologue, Deuteronomy, the epilogue, these three and middle books serving as three extended journey stop narratives. But look, think about this. If you've never noticed, what do you find in Genesis? In Genesis, you find the separation from the nations, all right? You see that when this word comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, leave everything that's familiar to to you and go to a place you've never been. And there's this program of blessing. There's the separation from the nations. There's blessing. There's the seeing of the land for the first time by Abram. There's descendants, and then the story of those descendants in the land. That pairs with Deuteronomy, because all those same themes are there in both both books, both Genesis and Deuteronomy, end with something in parallel. 
I don't know if you've ever seen this. What happens? The patriarch dies. Jacob in Genesis, Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, they die while blessing the 12 tribes, but while dying outside of the land. Now, briefly, Exodus and Numbers, they're also paired in the same way that Genesis and Deuteronomy are paired. What do they share? They talk about desert journeys with Israel, apostasy, plagues. But for Exodus, it's Pharaoh and the plagues. Numbers gives us the story of Balak and Balaam. Both books talk about the role of the firstborn in the Levites as the sons of Levi. Look at this. In Exodus, Israel's leaving Egypt, which is parallel with Israel in the book of Numbers, preparing to enter Canaan. And in while Exodus is preoccupied with the building of the tabernacle, as we saw for over many months in the latter half of the book of Exodus, it's in Numbers that the story of dedicating the same, that very same temple that's being constructed and prepared in the book of Exodus. But right in the middle of this, with Genesis, Exodus is this Leviticus. Leviticus is in the center, what Michael Morales calls the very narrative center of the Pentateuch. And so what he's saying in a sense is to understand, part of the key to understanding the whole of the Pentateuch is to understand Leviticus. And within Leviticus, he says, what's central is in chapter 16, what we call the what? The day of atonement, all right? And so we're schooled there in the details of the tabernacle service. And we're given a long lesson in the sacrifices, the cleanliness, and the holiness that God requires. John Piper, you know, has said this. He says, missions exist because worship does not. And I think there's a parallel we might state, if you've ever thought about this with this book, and that is sacrifices exist because holiness does not. Or stated positively, holiness necessitates Sacrifice. We know this from the book of Hebrews. And you will see, I think, as Pastor Jamie concludes these final three chapters of the book of Hebrews, there'll be many references to this book. And that is, without the shedding of blood, there is what? Kids, who knows that? Does anyone know that? Without the shedding of blood, we read in Hebrews 9, there is no what? Forgiveness of sin. In fact, that's one reason we dramatize the gospel, as we'll do tonight, with communion. Well, third... This is where we'll spend our remaining time. I want us to consider the structure and the themes of Leviticus. About five years ago, Pastor Juan Sanchez, he wrote an article and he said, I want to give, you, I want to give pastors five reasons to preach through the book of Leviticus. And I have to be honest, before I started this series, I thought, I probably need more than five reasons to sustain the effort through the book. But he says, look, think about this. What does Genesis do? Genesis answers the question of how God will provide Abraham the promised descendants. But think about then, what's the role of Exodus? It's part with, right, Leviticus and Numbers, that journey stop, right, that journey stop narrative. He says it answers the question of how God will redeem Abraham's descendants out of slavery in order to bring them to the promised land. The promised land, 
that we see talked about there in the book of Genesis, Genesis 12, with Abram and his descendants. And so then, as Israel struggles with sin and idolatry continue, though, the question remains, how can a holy God relate to sinful people? And Juan Sanchez says, Leviticus really answers that question. Leviticus is the answer to the question, how can we ascend Yahweh's hill? How can we provide, how can we receive an answer to David's question in Psalm 15 and Psalm 24? All right? So it's a book for us today because we're still a sinful people and God, Juan Sanchez says, is still holy. We still need his mercy. We still need this faithful mediator who will atone for our sins. It's very interesting that Paul there to Timothy says, in this, this most clear and simple of language, there is one God in one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. So, I want to take Juan Sanchez's five reasons why we might preach or go through this book, and it provides the outline for the book. And this will be our outline. We'll get these up in subsequent weeks, but I think it's really, really helpful uh, as we introduce the book here this morning. So, number one, in chapters one through seven, so briefly, we find a reminder of God's grace and the cost of our sin. Here it is. Chapters one through seven, so one through seven is a whole section. I'll probably just have two more sermons on, on these re- remaining six chapters. These chapters remind us of the grace of God in the cost of our sin. By the way, what is the cost? How do you determine the cost of something? Have you ever thought about that question? Like, what's the cost of this table? What's the the cost of this watch? The cost of something is determined by what someone will give for it. So when we see that chapters 1 through 7 remind us of the grace of our God and the cost of our sin, you know your sin is costly when it required the blood of the Son of God. There's a second thing that we see is uh, we look at this overall structure of the book of of, of Leviticus, and that's in chapters 8 through 10. This book exposes, Juan Sanchez says, it exposes God's grace in providing a mediator. We cannot mediate this ourselves, right? We don't serve and represent ourselves. He says this, he says in Leviticus, God sets apart his ministers that they may serve him and his people. But it also warns us that God's ministers must serve him as he requires and not as they decide for themselves. We use this expression of someone going rogue. Not so with the Son of God. Not so in his role as mediator, all right? These mediators were to facilitate atonement, all right? So first, in the first seven chapters, we're looking at a reminder of the grace of God and the cost of our sin. Secondly, that Leviticus shows us God's grace in providing a mediator. I mean, you can't get 
very far in chapter 1, and you'll see there in verse 5, Aaron's sons, the priests, in that mediatorial role. Thirdly, in verses 11 through, chapters 11 through 15, this book explains what God requires of those who approach him and worship. It's not left to our imagination. Yes, it's detailed. To some of you, you'd think, that's really picky. It's really picky. But God doesn't leave it to our imagination. There's a fourth thing then in when you take the whole of the book, chapters 16 and 17. This book foreshadows forgiveness of sin by that one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy again. I want you to see this, Paul's message to Timothy. Chapter 2, as he's urging Timothy to urge the people of God to pray, and he uses that that directive about prayer to say this in verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here it is, all right? One Savior, I mean, God our Savior who desires all to be saved and then now in the realm in this area of salvation, there's, there's one God, verse 5, and there's one mediator between God and man, and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul is not unclear. His calling as an apostle, and therefore what he presses on Timothy at the core or the heart of his ministry is to present Christ as that one mediator between God and man that's been foreshadowed in this key central book in the Pentateuch, the book of Leviticus, and particularly on that day of atonement when the high priest once a year, goes where no one else can go to make this particular sacrifice, all right? It's the glorious day of atonement. And Juan Sanchez says this. He says, as he speaks of this scapegoat, he says, a scapegoat was presented as a substitute upon which the sins of the people were symbolically laid, right? So from the Hebrew verb, Kafar to cover, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. To cover equals to atone. That's done with the scapegoat. And then that scapegoat was released outside the camp, picturing not simply the forgiveness of Israel's sins, but its departure. So that the words in Psalm 103 make sense. As far as the east is from the west, God says, It's this father who has compassion on his children. So far, I've removed your transgressions 
from you. There's a final thing in the book of Leviticus as we look at it in an outline in that it outlines how God's people are to be holy as God is holy. It was just a couple of weeks ago that uh, Brother Dave Kruver was preaching from 1 Peter and there they quote either from Leviticus 11:44, chapter 19, I think one and two. Very simple. You shall be holy because I am holy. All right? That's the theme of the book. And so, interestingly, a whole 10 chapters, what we might call the holiness code is, is devoted to this. And it's very simple. God is holy. We're to be holy. And kids, I want to just make this an application for a second for, for, for you or kids, okay? So in the gospel, by the gospel, the message of the gospel, we are commanded we are invited, we are called to come to turn from everything we, like, we want our own, the things that we just would do anything to have selfishly. And we turn with open hands and we give to God all that we are and all that he said we believe. It's like when you come up to a big tree and you try to put all your arms around it where your fingers can touch on the other side. And you say, God, I'm going to believe all the promises of God that you've given us in the gospel. That Jesus is enough to take my sin. And just like the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement was taken and released outside the encampment, so you can do that for me. But when God forgives us of our sin through the gospel, he doesn't leave us in it. He wants us, he wants to remake us in his image. You know, if you know Genesis 1, that the first apparent conversation between God in, in the book of Genesis is let us make man in our own image. God had this creation project to say, let's make mankind in a way that reflects what we are and in the gospel he's remaking us what was shattered what was tarnished what was dulled what was broken and cracked in the fall God is remaking through the gospel through our Lord Jesus Christ though you don't see this word it's there in Romans 8:29. those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now, this is a word of promise. If you say, I really messed this week up, like my sin really violated the right of way of my husband, my wife, my child, or maybe you're saying, my sin really messed up my parents' week. I caused them a lot of heartache. The good news is that in Christ, God is making all things new. And we're told in Philippians 1.6 that what God first began, unlike us who often never finish projects that we begin, his sanctification community project in you and me, he's going to get to the finish line. And you need to tell yourself that because you need to tell yourself the truth. I needed that. I need that this week. I need that tomorrow. You need it 
tomorrow. So now, just a couple of minutes and we'll be done. But there's the outline. I want to give that to you for, again, briefly. One is that, as you think of this book, very simply that the first seven chapters remind us of the grace of God and the cost of our sin. Chapters 8 through 10 talk about a mediator. So let me just give you that word mediator. Chapters 11 through 15 is what God requires of those who approach him. Chapters 16 through 17 with the focus on the day of atonement is giving us a picture. It's casting a light forward and foreshadowing forgiveness not through a high priest who entered a physical tabernacle or temple made with hands, but the Lord Jesus, where the high priest, in effect, offered himself. The offerer, John Murray says, became the offering. Christ offered himself. He gave up himself. And then finally, the holiness code of how we're to be holy is God is holy in chapters 18 through 21. So now, focus for a moment on those 17 verses. And I want you to notice in Leviticus 1 that where are we? We are in the realm of law. We're in this area, what we call offerings. You might say offering a sacrifice. And I want you to see how this comes to us. It's the Lord speaking, calling Moses and speaking to him. In this case, not out in the wilderness, if you will, but from the tent of meeting, all right? God speaks, he calls Moses and speaks to him from the tent of meeting. And then he gives this message for Moses to give to Israel. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. And you're going to notice over, coming, over the next two weeks, the, actually as we, as we go through the series, these different categories of offerings or sacrifices. There's burnt, grain, peace, sin, and guilt. No less than five offerings. And look at the occasion here. It's assumed that the people of Israel are going to bring offerings. You read there in verse two, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, all right? And the assumption is that the offering of sacrifice, it was both normal and necessary. You'll notice too, and I told Pastor Jamie I wouldn't steal his, th- his, his thunder, but in, in coming weeks, he'll be in chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews, and it's, it's there that in response to this once-for-all-time sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, that the writer says, through him, verse 15, then let us continually offer up this sacrifice of praise of God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So here's a practical application. Every day, this is the thread that runs through my spiritual habits. I think of the once for all, non-repeatable, perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus 
as the basis for which in a continual, not at single point in time, repeated habit of worship and offering of life is that rather than being the picture of gloom and ingratitude and tight-fisted God, you owe me better than this. It looks like this free-flowing, out-flowing, upward-oriented offering of a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then actually the writer makes it horizontal. There's this, and then he says, and he adds in verse 16, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so what's pictured and foreshadowed in the book of Leviticus comes to full fruition in the light of the Christian and so that tomorrow when I wake and when you wake, my breath, that first breath is not necessarily to check the score of the game that ended after midnight when I had already been in bed, but to breathe this dependent word of thanksgiving and praise to God to say, thank you, Father, for preserving me in the night and giving me this day and breath and gifts and all the opportunities that go with it. Help me steward it by your grace. Sacrifices then and now are normal and necessary. It's just the character of those sacrifices look different. I want you to notice too the cost of these sacrifices in the book. In chapter one in the burnt offerings, there is the bull from the herd in verses three through nine. In verses 10 through 13, there's a gift from the flock. It could be a sheep or a goat. Or maybe for someone that had not the means to offer a bull or a sheep or a goat from the flock, there's this offering here of a bird, maybe a pair of birds. It looks like it could be plural. Then he shall bring, verse 14, his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. Even in fact, look at this. You'll see here eventually in the grain offerings, something like in the grain offerings, they're bringing something like one gallon of grain. You might look in chapter 5 for a minute. Notice in chapter 5, verse 11. And this is in the realm of sin offerings. It says, if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he's committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. Instead of two flitting doves or turtle doves or these birds, pigeons, it's seven or eight pounds a gallon, maybe not even that, of grain. And sacrifice, notice this, sacrifice for the poor was not excluded. Just because they didn't have a bull 
or just because they didn't have a sheep or a goat, it was appropriate for them to bring something. All right? Notice there's a qualitative difference according to one station in life. And those who could give a bull, they did. But also those who could only bring an offering of grain, they did as well. And I think there's an application for a moment for us. Do you know sometimes maybe um, it's like this. Days I've been with Pastor Jamie and he's counseling and I think I'll never be the counselor he is. I've so enjoyed just that over these last four years being side by side with him. Or maybe I watched Paul Washer or Bodie Bauckham or you, you, you fill in the blank, your favorite preacher who you like to preach. And you think, I'll never preach like that. I'll never be that gifted. I can't bring a bull like they, I can't bring a bull like they. I can't bring a sheep or a goat like they. All I've got here is my jug, my one gallon jug of grain. Or I got in my backpack here, let me rip it open, two little flitting doves. By faith, the application even of Hebrews 13 is you bring what you have with a desire to please God in what you bring, your gifts, your time, your talent, treasure, you bring with the desire, the single-minded purpose that God may use it and bless it. We need to be reminded sometimes that the only person that Jesus ever commended for giving was the widow whose two copper coins went like clink, clink there at the door to the temple. I want you to see, too, the purpose of these sacrifices. It says that he may be accepted before the Lord. That he may be accepted before the Lord. For four and a half years, Cheryl and I lived in what's called in Chinese a xiao chu. It's a community. It was six or seven apartment buildings, 16 stories high. And I was always trying to guesstimate how many people lived there. I think there were maybe 5,000 people. To my knowledge, we were the only non-Chinese for much of that time. Okay. So 4,998 Chinese, two Americans who could speak Chinese, maybe on the level of a three-year-old, something like that. Okay. And I always had this longing to be accepted. That's why Cheryl was always like, when we'd be out in the courtyard of our community, I was always trying to practice my terrible Chinese and just speak it, right? Kind of that approach that says the only way to get something, good at something is to be terrible at it until you've done it enough times you're okay at it. But I always just wanted to be accepted. I wanted them to not look at us simply as foreigners, but as two people that lived and cared about them and loved their country and, and cared for the good of their country. The purpose of these sacrifices, in, you might see in these repeated frame, phrases that they would be accepted before the Lord. You see that it's initially offered there in verse 3. We'll see it as a theme in a repeated phrase, but you see it there. He shall bring it, verse 3, speaking of this bull, to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. What is the realm of sacrifices and offerings? It's the realm of acceptance. How shall we ascend the hill of Yahweh? You notice that the offering itself was killed before the Lord. The Lord was the witness to it. Yeah? 
the, the person that brought it, the Israelite that brought it, they lay their head on it and they slay it. All right, they killed it, verse five. Even though it was Aaron's sons, the priests, that they splattered the blood, they brought the blood, they threw it against the sides of the altar that is outside of the tabernacle. Then they, they cut it all up and they put it on the fire and they arranged the wood on the fire so that this would be offered. Notice too this joint action here by both the offerer and the priest. There is this before the Lord. I don't know if you've noticed this. You have the Israelite person bringing the bull or the sheep or the goat or maybe the turtle doves or the pigeons or maybe this ephah of grain. And there's the Aaron's sons, the priests. But this is all taking place before the Lord. But I want you to see something. See, of all these coming together, the offerer has a role, and the priest has a role, and, and God is, if you will, witness to this. It takes place before the Lord, verse 5, before the Lord. And you'll see that phrase repeated. Remember the quote by John Murray that at the cross, all these come together. The offerer became the offering. And this is the template for how we love one another. It's the template for how husbands love wives or to love their wives. That as Jesus in Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, loved us and gave himself for us so that is to mark and is to be the template the way we love one another and the way we as men are to love our wives. Holiness necessitates sacrifice and sacrifices exist because holiness does not. Notice the final phrase. I want you to see this repeated phrase. Verse nine, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as, an, as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Look at verse 13. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Look at the end of verse 17. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You know that aroma deals with our nose, right? You walk in and the crock pot's been on. You come into the house and you can smell, you know that something's really good for lunch or for dinner, okay? But in the Old Testament, in the Bible, God's nostrils, his long nose, is when God is angry. When God is long in the nose, God is angry with the wicked. So God's greatest displeasure is connected particularly to his nostrils being flared in anger. But God's pleasure is related as well to the sweetness of acceptable sacrifice. Turn with me to chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Christian, do you know what you are? You are the aroma of Christ to God. Now think about that. 
you are the aroma of Christ, not simply like light to a watching world, salt to the earth, but Paul says you are the fragrance, the aroma of Christ to God. You. 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. And of course, Paul says, wow, who is sufficient for these things? Brothers and sisters, as we close, don't Don't minimize what God has made you in his son by the sacrifice of his son. All that's foreshadowed in Leviticus. Look, it doesn't merely, as Juan Sanchez, he says, it doesn't merely detail animal sacrifices and holiness codes. It does that, but it does so much more. It exposes the heart of a gracious God who provides a substitute for the sin of his repentant people. And so the substitute not only received the death penalty in our place, but he also obeyed in our place, gaining for us all the blessings of holiness. So he says, now under the new covenant, Jesus, he empowers us for holy living by first granting us a new heart in the Holy Spirit. And so in closing, I want to say this. If you can hear my voice, here's the potential that we have through the gospel. Now through the gospel and through his cross, it is not just as though we have never sinned, but it is we are counted as those who have always obeyed. That's great, great news. That's a gospel worth believing. And so I say today, come, do not wait. Or you, you're like, I'm not a Christian. Come. You say, I'm a Christian, but I am wrestling with a matter of repentance in, 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 in dwelling sin. Come, run, make a beeline for the cross. Come to this one who took away our sin.